0: and sort of praying that the Almighty might give me some revelation as to how this cup could be taken away from me and I could get out of this with honor. Um, But there was no such um, out. And I sort of survived, but sometimes I look back on that now and wish I could be that scared again. Um, One of the things about getting old is that you don't scare as easy as you used to, but maybe I should. I'm going to talk about this book um, or parts of it. And um, these great episodes of human progress are what I refer to as the great escape. The running metaphor of the book is the film, um, The Great Escape, um, with Steve McQueen in it, um, in which a whole bunch of people escaped from a German prisoner of war camp. Um, And I talk about in the book, not from prisoners of war camp, but about the escape from destitution, ill health, and premature mortality to what we have now, or what a lot of us have now, which is long expected life and material living standards. What I don't really talk about in the book but is very important, um, better governance, Um, democracy is much more widespread throughout the world than it ever has been. Large scale reductions in violence, Um, some of you may have seen Steven Pinker's book um, about the better angels and um, talking about that. Um, huge increases in education, which are still going on around the world, and arguably, and I would argue on that side, that there have been great increases in happiness and in the way that people value their lives. Now, the key story, part of the story here is that many of these episodes have allowed only some people to escape and have left um, many, many other people behind. So that in this sense, progress has been an engine. Um, of inequality. Um, You get this great progress, um, but it splits. The movie The Great Escape doesn't talk about the great left behind, which are the people who didn't make it out of the prison camp, but maybe we should think about them too. It caused a lot of inequality. So I'm going to talk about some of those episodes and what we think, what we should think about the inequality that results. Um, In particular, is that inequality good? Um, Is it bad? And what effects might it have? And it's clear that sometimes it's good, sometimes it's very, very bad. And I'm going to talk about different episodes with different valences that way. What historians call the great divergence is probably the most (coughs) famous example of the kind, which is the sustained economic growth, which began in Northwest Europe between 1750 and 1850, and which sowed the seeds of the increases in material living standards and life expectancies that I've talked about already and that pulled these leading countries away from their neighbors and indeed for the rest of the world. Now, when I first studied um, economics in Cambridge in the 60s and we heard about the Industrial Revolution, the impression that was given um, was that the rest of the world was sort of nowhere while this was going on. Um, And that, to use John Robinson's memorable phrase, everybody else was living on nuts in the jungle um, sort of idea. And then there's this emergence of an industrial revolution in Northwest Europe. Modern scholarship has really showed that that's really not true at all. um, And that there were many previous episodes of really very strong economic growth and material prosperity, um, particularly in China, but also in parts of India, um, so on. One of my favorite slides, which is not in the book, is this one, um, which shows um, Admiral Hay's ship. Admiral Hay was sent off by the Emperor of China um, to explore the known world and sailed around the Indian Ocean um, and sweeping all before him. He had eight of these ships, um, which were very large, and he explored and conquered um, At some point, uh, which is a very obscure part of the story, he actually bought a giraffe in Calcutta, which is not the obvious place. The the story never quite tells how the giraffe got to Calcutta, but nevertheless, Admiral Hay bought one there and took it back to China. This was um, in the early 15th century, um, 80 years or so before Christopher Columbus um, sailed across the Atlantic. And the picture there, this is... Christopher, the little mosquito boat in the middle here is the Santa Maria. And this is a wonderful metaphor for the difference between Chinese and Western European technology um, in the 15th century, with Chinese being given the disadvantage of almost a century um, in time here. So what was difference, what was different was not The lack of development anywhere else in the world but the lack of sustained development anywhere else in the world and why this went on in the west um, but not in the rest for the world as a whole these gaps between (coughs) (coughs) the first and last have never really closed Um, and so you can go all the way back into the 18th and 19th century for the roots of the gigantic inequalities that exist in the world today. And I mean, I spent a lot of time that I'm not going to bother you or bore you with today trying to explicate how these things are measured um, in a fairly user-friendly way, or that's the aim of it in the book. But it's by and large, it's true that country by country, gaps in material living standards are still not closing. Um, So you might say, what about India and China? Okay. <clears throat> but what about all the countries in Africa that have been slipping further behind and so on? So if you take country by country, these gaps are still as wide as they were. maybe different countries. If you do it person by person, of course, India and China and their recent growth count for a lot, and it 's probably true that global inequality may now actually be falling across persons just because of the great elevation of two and a half billion people in those two countries. but i 'm not sure the data are really good enough to tell us for sure about that. So let me skip forward. If you fast backwards, as I say, to the Neolithic Revolution and the invention of agriculture, before agriculture, humans had lived as hunter-gatherers, perhaps for most of their existence, something like a million years. Um, One of the things we know about hunter-gatherers from the historical record and from present groups back since they were first studied is that there's enormous equality um, in those groups. So for most of human history, there really was no income inequality or inequality in anything that looked like income. That's something that's often forgotten. This idea that inequality has always been with us. Um, it's really not true. Um, this has been linked um, by historians to the inability to store. Um, if I pull down a woolly mammoth one day and I can't eat it all by myself and I can't, Um, Then sharing is really the only alternative to having a refrigerator um, in the sense that I can eat my piece of the woolly mammoth today and then share it all with you in the hope that when you have the mammoth next week, um, you can share it too. And in fact, there's evidence that there's more storage um, nearer the pole, less near the equator. There's sort of natural freezers near the pole. And societies were less equal and more hierarchic nearer the pole. Um, Even so there was great equality. So there's sort of linkage between storage technology and equality. So humans lived in equal societies for most of their history. And actually that last comment is sort of important. We may actually be hardwired to like it because over that period of time there's plenty of time for our brains to change to like equality. Agriculture, we think of as one of these great beneficial revolutions, but again, modern scholarship has suggested that that may not actually be the case, and it may have been a response to deteriorating conditions. One of the things that comes up in this history is called the broad-spectrum revolution, and that sounds like another great thing that happened. Uh, People stopped eating large animals, and they started eating smaller animals and grasses and seeds and so on. But, of course, that wasn't a good thing. They stopped eating large animals because they'd eaten all the large animals. (laughs) And they were forced to chase little animals. And that wasn't so much fun. Um, And so um, it may have been that this being forced into agriculture was actually a bad thing. May have been a good thing. Um, There's domestication of animals and so on. But it was also the beginning of inequality because with storage came those who would control food. You get rulers and priests. You get states for the first time. But if you put all that together, modern income and political inequality may be less than 10,000 years old in human history. It may really date back to agriculture. Um, And on the positive interpretation, it's perhaps the first example of increased inequality as the price of progress. You discovered agriculture, but you had to live in a hierarchic society. On the negative interpretation of better progress than would otherwise have happened. It was a sort of defensive maneuver against the bad things that happened. I want to talk about some parallels in health. Um, The book is largely about health and material well-being and how they run along together. So life expectancy began to rise in Britain in the middle of the 18th century in parallel with the industrial revolution. Some common causes such as the enlightenment, uh, if you like, the application of reason to human progress. And this led to great inequality in life chances, not just between countries but also within countries, and it's the birth of what nowadays um, in the health and sociological literature is called the gradient. Um, And I want to show you one of my favorite pictures. This was actually first drawn by Bernard Harris, Um, and I've, you know, filched out the data and redrawn this here, Um, and um, this is life expectancy in Britain from before 1550 till after 1850. Um, and this is the Tony Wrigley project um, over many years, which worked with parish records to write, try and reconstruct um, life expectancy over time in Britain. And you know, it's these like one of these time series, which if you really want to look for a trend, you can cut it in the right places. You can find trends. But the most obvious thing here is just there's very, very little. Um, for 350 years um, over this period. Really bad things happened, plagues and epidemics and so on, which cut life expectancy by a lot for a short period of time. And then they bounced back. Now, Harris had the terrific idea of imposing on this graph the life expectancy of Ducal ducal families. I'm not sure how you say Ducal, but it's spelled D-U-C-A-L. It's the family of dukes the sort of aristocracy. And of course those are meticulously documented So it's not so hard to find out what the life expectancy of the aristocracy was over all this period And if you superimpose it on this graph, it looks like this Um, Which is sort of a really amazing picture um, That you've got for 200 more years. There's very little difference Um, And in fact the dukes of anything often do rather worse Um, They're sort of charging you know, leading the troops into battle sort of idea turns out, not to be such a great thing um, to do. But you might think that because these people were richer, they lived in palatial houses, they lived in castles instead of, you know, in the awful slums, um, the, um, they might have done better in their life expectancy, but they didn't. And the truth is that until 1750 and so on, there's nothing that people knew that could really protect you. So your children still died of diarrheal disease. They still died of smallpox. They died of all the scourges of history because you could be as rich as you wanted, but if you weren't drinking clean water, it didn't really help you um, very much. And then after 1750, something really began to happen. Not entirely clear what it was um, that happened in that period. So I say we don't know what caused the improvement among the wealthy, Um, But here are the candidates. One of the things that's interesting, and I find out when doing the work for this book, is that there's really very little agreement in general about what caused changes in life expectancy over time. So you've got to read this stuff and take your choices. So one of the big things, and I think it's probably the biggest though, there was a huge fight over this um, in the 70s, was inoculation for smallpox. So almost everybody caught smallpox in the early part of the 18th century. Some people died. um, Some people caught it and survived and got lifetime immunity. So in the cities, for instance, almost everybody had had smallpox at times. In the countryside, some people didn't get it until the epidemic came along and then a lot of people died. The the procedure inoculation um, involves scraping um, some material from the pustules of someone who has smallpox and then using a lancet to rub it into the arm of the person you want to um, inoculate. They have a mild case of smallpox um, and they then get lifetime immunity. Now, of course, there's been a lot of dispute over whether that really works. It had been practiced for probably a thousand years in much of Africa, been practiced in China for a very, very long time. George Washington inoculated the whole of the Continental Army. And the knowledge of inoculation was brought across the middle pass, middle passage by enslaved um, Africans um, who passed it on to their masters. Um, In Britain, the story um, involves the wife of the British ambassador to Istanbul, who brought back the story to the court of George I and said, you should vaccinate all the princes and princesses. And the king did that. But first, he found a bunch of what were called abandoned children and inoculated them first. Um, And then there were some condemned prisoners, and they didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. And it's interesting that modern human subjects regulation, those are the two groups that are essentially absolutely verboten. You're not allowed to do these things on children. You're not allowed to do them on prisoners. Um, But that's what they did. Um, None of them died. And so all the royal princes um, and princesses were inoculated and survived to tell the story. It became uh, widely spread among the rich, it was very expensive, the doctors charged a lot of money for it, um, and it probably had a big effect on the aristocrats before anyone else. A whole bunch of other things listed there um, um, quinine, um, syphilis treatment, um, Ipecac. The interesting thing about those is, is that we think nowadays of modern discoveries in medicine. That's flowing from the rich countries out to the periphery. These were all from the periphery into the rich countries. a Very different direction from now. Male midwives began to be used in Britain, city improvements. Uh, my own home city, Edinburgh, was completely reconstructed or a new city was built um, in the end of the 18th century. So all of these are benevolent, expensive and later spread more widely. Now it would have been better if everybody had got them at once. Um, But that's likely impossible to do. And I'll say the same thing about modern health interventions, that many of them start out expensive. They come to a few. You get health inequalities. But these health inequalities are sort of harbingers of future health improvements. So that's one thing to keep in mind, that this inequality is a signal that good stuff is ahead for everybody. And the other thing that's worth noting is it's not true that there's always a gradient. So these health inequalities are sometimes the result of income or power inequalities, but they don't, to me at least, in any very obvious way, make those inequalities worse. And I'm going to talk about other inequalities that are not so fortunate. So this is what happened in the end. Um, this is the curve that was first drawn by Sam Preston in 1975. Um, this shows GDP per capita in price-adjusted units on the horizontal axis and life expectancy of birth on the vertical axis. This areas of the blobs are proportional um, to population um, size. So two things to notice about this. Um, One is the enormous inequalities in the world um, between people down at the left there who essentially have nothing. With people up here who have $40,000 to $50,000 a year. So these inequalities—most of the inequality in the world is between countries, not within countries. They're just enormous. The same is true of life expectancy. You can go from 45 to 85. And then the second fact is that those things go together. So the people who get a really bad draw in the income space. ALSO GET A REALLY BAD DRAW IN THE HEALTH SPACE. THE CORRELATION IS FAR FROM PERFECT, um, BUT NEVERTHELESS, YOU SEE THAT very strongly IN THE DATA. I LIKE TO CALL THIS THE ONWARD AND UPWARD CURVE, WHICH SHOWS THE PRESENT CURVE IN 1960 AND THE PRESENT CURVE um, IN 2010. Um, <coughs> AND YOU CAN SEE THAT THERE'S GENERAL PROGRESS um, TOWARDS THE PLACE YOU'D WANT TO BE, WHICH IS THE TOP RIGHT um, OF THE GRAPH. Um, And what's more than that, which is another good thing, is that the 2010 curve is above the 1960 curve. So that means that even if your income didn't go up over that period, you likely got some health improvement. It's it's really possible to get substantial improvement in health without economic growth. And that's happened again and again um, around the world. Whether it's possible to get substantial economic growth without some health improvement first is uh, a more disputed... The last thing you want to look at this curve is look at China 1960 and China 2010. And you've got over 50 years an increase in life expectancy from about 45 to 75, 30 years over 50 years. In fact, most of that happened between 1960 and 1970. And that was because Chairman Mao stopped killing people because you had the Great Famine um, in 1960. Um, If you were to go back to 1950, life expectancy would be 10 or 15 years higher. 30 million people died in that famine. Um, 40 million people who would have been born were not born. Um, These estimates are probably central estimates in a fairly disputed literature. But it's become pretty clear that Mao knew what was going on and chose not to do anything about it for political. And so that's one of the great catastrophes. Um, And, you know... ONE OF THE THINGS THAT'S VERY IMPORTANT TO NOTE IS THAT ALL OF THIS PROGRESS IS NOT uniform, AND IT'S NOT UNINTERRUPTED AND THERE'S NOTHING THAT SAYS IT CAN GO ON um, FOREVER. THERE ARE GREAT THREATS um, HANGING OVER US EVEN TODAY AND I HOPE MY DISCUSSANT WILL RAISE ONE OF THOSE THAT'S CLOSE TO HIS HEART. Um, THIS MAKES THE POINT EVEN MORE CLOSELY. THIS IS A SORT OF TIME AND MOTION THING. Um, THIS IS THE SAME CURVE YOU JUST SAW um, BUT I STRIPPED IT DOWN. The red blob is South Africa. So if you run this from 1960 to 1970, you can see what happens to China um, below 40 up into the 60s. Um, South Africa is moving up with the curve. South Africa has always been below the curve simply because South Africa is the average of a very poor majority and a very rich minority. So you can think of it as averaging across the curve, and that's why it's sort of below the curve. Um, and here's 1970, 1980, 1990, you see as apartheid's breaking down, it's moving up towards the curve, and then a catastrophe strikes, and it just falls off the end of the world. You could do that same picture for Uganda, um, um, for Tanzania, for um, Malawi, for Botswana, um, Zimbabwe, Um, And that, of course, is HIV-AIDS, which is the other great (coughs) catastrophe um, of the recent um, past. So even in spite of all this health improvement, you know, we're not safe. Um, You don't want to think of the world as a safe place. And these horrible things, one of them man-made, the other one not really so man-made, can come along at any given time. So what happened in the end, the germ theory of disease? partly in response to the ravages of the disease, the identifications of agents, um, John Snow here in London with the cholera epidemics, vaccination, science-based public health, vaccination sort of followed from the germ disease. And you have the same geographical progression as material living standards, Northwestern Europe and offshoots, Southern Eastern Europe, Third World after World War II. And you get this convergence um, in life expectancy around the world. Um, And I think of this as one of these benign parts of inequality. Um, The fact that some people could be inoculated against smallpox showed that others could be so too and then that spread and that made the world a better place pulling up the latecomers behind them. There's a slight problem here, which is that uh, these big increases in life expectancy in poor countries have come from reducing infant and child mortality Whereas the increases in life expectancy in the rich countries have come from the reducing mortality of people my sort of age, um, a little bit younger. It's not entirely clear that saving the lives of children is equivalent to saving the lives of older people. And in fact, a lot of the convergence in life expectancy um, has come from the fact that there are easy pickings by saving the life of children if you use life expectancy as a metric. I mean, it's not been easy. But there's very little child or infant mortality left in rich countries, so that source of increasing life expectancy has gone away. So I'm not a great fan of using life expectancy to assess inequality around the world because the metrics I don't think are really very clear. So here's um, pictures um, of life expectancy, these box and whisker plots. The horizontal lines in the middle show the median life expectancy around the world. Um, This is from 1950 through to 2005 by five year intervals and you can see the general progress in life expectancy And then the boxes show the 25th and 75th percentile And so you get an idea of what the inequality in life expectancy has been and you can see it generally shrinking The boxes are getting smaller and smaller and smaller as you move towards the right um, you have get places like Sierra Leone and Rwanda in 1990, you get the expansion through eight, but there's this general um, improvement and shrinking of variance. I, I love to show this too because this shows that um, <coughs> it's hard to look at the health of people who are still alive um, and, you know, death is pretty final and pretty easy to measure. Um, but this is, this looks at heights um, around the world. Um, these are all women because for a while the surveys that these are based on only sampled um, women. Um, and I've got per capita national income along the bottom. And this is women's heights, average heights in centimeters um, up the vertical axis. And each blob is a birth <laughs> cohort, a birth cohort. So it's. Uh, Group of women born in the same year, and their <coughs> average adult height, not when they're born, is plotted against um, the GDP in the country in the year in which they were born. So there's a number of things that are pretty amazing to, about this graph, to me at least. One is if you look at Europe, which is the sort of light colored things up at the top there, and the United States, um, you can see that these people born over the last 50 years or so, this is all born between about um, 1940 and 1990, essentially. Um, You run out of data after that. Um, There's been this enormous increase in height, about 10 centimeters um, on average um, over this period. As people got richer, um, they got better nourished, um, they got more protection against childhood disease. I think of childhood disease as one of the major determinants of adult height. This puts a tax on the body as a child, which stunts growth almost forever. Um, Apart from that, which is sort of interesting, is that in the rest of the world, there's very little relationship between GDP and height, and in fact, if you knock out Europe, that relationship is sort of negative, is mildly negative, a lot of which comes from the fact that Africans are pretty tall um, and very poor. And Latin Americans who are better off um, are um, better off, but quite a lot shorter on average. India, Nepal, and Bangladesh are among the shortest people um, in the world. Um, And you still have the situation in India where about half the kids are severely malnourished by world standards. So let's talk a little bit about progress in health. which is contemporary health improvements in rich countries are largely driven by innovations. I give some of the examples here prevention and treatment of heart disease, reductions in smoking across the rich world, men more than women. That's narrowed the life expectancy gender inequality. Women, the gap between women and men's life expectancy is now smaller in rich countries than it's been probably for 100 years or more, largely because women were much slower than men to quit smoking. Um, More recently, there's a fair amount of progress against cancer. This has been equalizing across countries, but disequalizing within countries. And the technical progress seems to have spread more rapidly across countries than within them. Here's a picture of cardiovascular disease for 55 to 65-year-old men. Um, These are deaths per 1,000 people. And you can see the USA and Britain were going in different directions from 50 through to about 1970. There was a discovery of antihypertensives and their effectiveness in around 1970. And then you get this very rapid drop, synchronized drop in mortality from cardiovascular disease. If you bring in the whole of the rest of the world, or the whole of the rest of the rich world, you can see this dance going on pretty much everywhere. That's got to be technology, because there's nothing else other than a worldwide epidemic that could have found that. Look, even the Finns, who used to be the world record holders for dying of heart attacks, um, they' just basically come down and joined the packs i 'm not sure that they moderated their drinking very much or the other things that Finns did, but the antihypertensives, I think, are pretty well implicated in there. There 's a very important randomized control trial in the late '60s, which indicated the effectiveness of these.
1: and here 's the other big one,
0: um, which is lung cancer. Um, And these are deaths from lung cancer and you can see this enormous divergence But now all around the world for men at least um, They're quitting and the mortality rate is coming down for women um, The US is the black line in the middle there. They'd be much slower to quit and um, The this curve has only very recently begun to turn around even in the US So here's the various innovations within the United States Um, So, again, this is the same argument. This is an arguably benign process, which is these new drugs, these new treatments and so on, used first by the rich, powerful, and well-educated. You get increases in inequality, but these inequalities spur efforts to include those left behind and help spread the health benefits to everyone. I think of this as a fairly benign form of inequality. Um, I know a lot of people in the health inequalities literature don't think that but it does create the incentives and opportunities for people to do a lot better. Unfortunately, income inequality I think is a very different animal. So this to me is one of the places where income inequality as it is now is not such a great thing. So in the US today we see these same themes at work. Economic growth Though one of the big facts that I'm sure everybody else everybody here knows, but it's worth repeating, is if you take decade by decade since the Second World War, GDP growth rates have been falling. The same is true in the rich countries of Western Europe. I think that's a fact of the greatest significance is the fact that growth is slowing down. It makes everything more difficult because there's less stuff to buy people off with that makes political conflict much more difficult. Now, if you look at the good inequalities, um, this is what economists tend to raise when you you say, hey, inequality is bad. And they say it's not bad. It's skill-based, skill-biased technical progress, which is itself, in part, response to rising wages, directed technical progress, which saves on labor, the returns to education, which raised earnings inequality, which raised income inequality through complicated links. Um, there's lots of other things going on here, like assortative mating, probably powers up the mechanism. Um, it used to be that if you were a really rich guy, your spice was quite unlikely to work. So the mating, even though your spice was very highly educated, so when you took people together, that reduced income inequality. Now the very rich guys are married to the very rich women, and you get these power couples, each of who are earning half a million dollars each. And that's powering up inequality um, at the top. But all of this provided incentives for more education, which increased educational attainment at least for a while, and it spread the benefits of the original partially induced innovation. Now, if this was all that income inequality was doing, you could find it, you could view it um, as a positive set of events. And in fact, a lot of economists, there was a recent issue of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Um, with economists debating inequality, and probably more than half of them said income inequality is just fine. It's just the market signaling to us what we ought to do. But the biggest divergence in income inequality, especially in the United States, but it's not limited to the United States, has been at the very top. Um, Sayas and Piketty sort of changed the whole world of income inequality studies by going back to the tax records, which Kuznets had done long ago. And in the tax records, you can, of course, you get everybody. So you can look at the people at the very top, um, not just, you know, the people who would never be in a household survey. In recent years, this polarization has gone on with the very bottom of the income distribution, um, doing not so badly as people above them. There's a lot of non offshoreable services in there. And so you've got this big inequality increase is in 99 or above to 50 ratio, not the 90 to 10 ratio, for example. This has caused great confusion in the literature because one of the things I think has come out of the recent inequality studies is that you have to look at the whole distribution. It doesn't make a lot of sense just to look at parts of it or to look at the Gini coefficient or something. You really have to look up what's going on in different parts. Some of this is arguably skill-biased technical change, particularly in finance. But much is a consequence of inequality generating more inequality. And that, I think, is the thing that really bothers one (coughs) the most. Political scientists and economists, I think, are beginning to do a really serious job of documenting the (coughs) politics of inequality propagation. Some of these are much better documented than others. In the state in which I live, New Jersey, which is by far not the least liberal place in the United States, I mean it's quite a liberal state, 30% of black males are banned from voting at any given time Um, because if you're in jail in the United States, you don't get to vote. In a whole bunch of states in the United States, those people are banned from voting for life once they've been convicted of a felony. And a felony can be something like forging a check. I mean, a a felony is not like murder or something. Um, Politicians, there's really good evidence showing that analyzing the votes of congressmen and senators. And they respond to the needs of their rich constituents. They don't respond at all to the needs of their poor constituents. There's huge capture of regulators and corporate boards. Um, there's huge lobbying going on for changes of rules. One of the best examples is the repeal of Glass-Steagall, um, the carrying interest deduction, which means large swathes of rich people in the finance industry in the United States pay half the tax rates um, of anyone else. Um, there's low or zero taxes on capital gains or on inherited wealth. And you get legislation being written by corporations um, for their own benefit. Mansur Olson a long time ago wrote about this situation in the rise and decline of nations, talking about small rent-seeking groups having enormous incentives to destroy growth in order to promote their own sectional interests. Um, You can also think of a world in which growth is faltering, then fighting for a larger share of the pie becomes even more important because there isn't the growth there that gives you the stuff sort of for free. As Asmogwa and John Robinson's recent book on how nations fail talks about growth requiring innovations and innovations requires creative destruction. And they give lots of examples in their book about how rich and powerful elites fear and stop creative destruction. So it's sort of like Admiral Hay all over again. The emperor was afraid of what might happen if he allowed there to be larger scale maritime things. So the larger scale maritime exploration would have made potentially everybody better off but it threatened the emperor's position. And this is the phenomenon that you can think of as people make the escape out of the prisoner war camp. And then instead of helping the other people out, they return to fill in the tunnels. Or you can think of it to switch the metaphors, pulling up the ladders behind them. Um, and then this stops further progress. So that's really the bad side of inequality is the extent to which the very rich um, begin to, um, up the ladders behind them. Now why do we care about income inequality, even extreme income inequality? Some people just dislike income inequality and regard it as unjust. Um, I've had a hard time in the philosophical literature finding a consistent definition of justice or what is unjust. I think the best definition I come across by Van Paris is that things are not as they ought to be seems like a little circular, but nevertheless, good discussion. We might just be jealous and we're unhappy because others have more than we do, or that there are many who are deprived. The greater concern, and this is where I focus my attention at least, is that it undermines the way that economists like to use the Pareto criterion. So economists, especially on the right, but not just on the right, will tend to dismiss inequality by saying, Um, Okay, why does it hurt you if the rich get even richer? So if the rich get richer and it doesn't hurt you, then that's surely okay. We believe in Pareto efficiency and Pareto optimality. That's fine, but it comes from a too narrow focus on what we're looking at in well-being. So if the rich take away something else from us that's not income but that matters to us, then we're really worse off and you're not talking about a Pareto improvement here. So what I think you're really worried about or what I worry about is democracy being corrupted. The rest of us don't get to vote or our votes don't count. Public health care is of very little interest to the very rich. Public education is of little interest to the very rich. If you've been following the disgraceful shenanigans in Washington over the last two weeks, Um, You'll know that a huge amount of that is funded by very rich people who don't want any extension of public health care And that's actually what's happening here. And it's certainly not the only force in this debate But that's inequality going after the extension of health insurance to the general population Income inequality may check the innovations on which future growth depends Because those who won the last round of innovation stand in the way of the next Um, really good example here would be pharmaceutical companies um, <coughs> using the political process to extend the patents on the drugs, um, for exa- example. So they're getting more than they agreed on um, reward for those um, in order to just make themselves better off. Um, and there are many other examples.
1: So to me, the crucial problem
0: here is political inequality. And politics can sometimes work in the opposite direction. Um, Simon Schrader did this wonderful work on how the reform acts in Britain in the 19th century um, acted to bring clean water provision to British cities. Um, my colleague Thomas Fujiwara has a very nice example of how an improvement in voting technology in Brazil um, brought health improvements because it enabled poor people to vote. Um, there's good work by Amin, Jane Greenstone, ON civil rights, Medicare, and the black-white mortality in Mississippi in the late 1960s, where the passage of the Civil Rights Act basically extended health care um, to blacks too. And the, as we see, I mean, the huge fight that's going on now is that it attempts to dismantle Medicare are certainly resisted um, too. So, keeping responsible politicians, responsible to all of the people, um, contract and accountability and questions about aid undermining this, which I'll talk about in a minute. And there are historical arguments about which way you think this is going to go. I'm fairly pessimistic, um, but I think you could make a positive case too. And I think there has not been enough study of this. I mean, political scientists until very recently have simply not been interested in studying the way that inequality perpetuates, but they're beginning um, to do that. And economists sort of think politics is someone else's business. Um, not entirely so, but some. So just for my sort of last topic, I want to talk a little bit about coming back to these global inequalities in income and health. Um, There are these huge differences which we saw earlier in life expectancy and incomes. Most of this is driven in the health side by infant and child mortality rates which drive most differences in life expectancy. Children die in poor countries largely by the accidental geography of their birth. and This is what's so horrifying um, about these inequalities. Um, many people think that, you know, if you go to Africa, these people are dying of exotic diseases which don't have any known cures. I mean, some of that's true for, like, HIV-AIDS in a way, but mostly they're dying of things that we've known how to fix for a very, very long time. What it makes it even worse is if you go to India or you go to Brazil, children are often dying within a short distance of incredibly wealthy hospitals, hospitals that are essentially first aid (laughs) hospitals and so on. So you've got this awful situation of children whose lives should have been saved 100 years ago who are still dying from these diseases that we know very easily um, how to cure. Half of all children in India are severely malnourished even though India is no longer classed as a poor country. And as Jeff Sachs likes to always remind us, the cost of fixing these things is tiny if they actually could be implemented. I mean, if these were problems in London or there were problems in Paris, these would be fixed for not very much money quite quickly. To me, this generates just an enormous um, obligation um, to assist, um, which is the way that philosophers like to put it. especially. And this is compounded by the fact that a lot of the poverty in poor countries was at least aided by us. I I don't want to put it all down to colonialism, but the record of the rich world in the past has not been a great one, particularly in leaving a legacy of ineffective institutions um, around the world. So I have no ethical quarrel at all with those who call for more aid, but I do have a practical Um, And I argue that it is doing more harm than good and that the good that it sometimes or indeed often does is offset by serious harms to poor people around the world. And that's the last chapter um, of the book. And let me see, I just, uh, okay, just two slides. So I wanted to start with the positive side of aid. And I think there's just a tremendous amount of stuff that we, meaning the citizens of the rich world, actually can do to help. So someone asked me the other day, um, you know, if I had a few billion dollars to help the poor people of the world, what would I do with it? And I said that the first thing I would do with it would be to establish, this is American money supposedly, I would establish another institute in the National Institutes of Health that would be dedicated to doing research on the diseases of poor people um, around the world. We have an institute in Washington that researches HIV and AIDS. We have no institute that looks after malaria, no institute that looks after tuberculosis, or not primarily responsible. That would be a huge thing that we could do, which would generate the basic knowledge that would save a lot of lives around the world. I think we could do a better job of providing consulting services. I think the World Bank should stop lending money and should become a giant consulting house, um, preferably competitively so um, with McKinsey and other organizations that could give the enormous knowledge that is contained in the World Bank um, to countries around the world in many cases who are very hungry for that knowledge. That knowledge is not being effectively transmitted right now because the knowledge in the bank tends to be tied to aid. It's very difficult to give knowledge by the bank where there's no aid project. Um, Assistance on trade negotiations, knowledge of what happens elsewhere. There's a lot of stuff we could do on trade reforms, cotton subsidies, sugar subsidies, and so on, which hurt farmers around the world. Um, As far as I can see, in the United States, the Secretary of Commerce's main job is as an arms salesman um, around the world. It's not entirely clear that we're very serious about foreign aid if we give money to poor countries and then sell them arms um, at the same time. And Nick will no doubt tell me I'm being very, very cynical, but sometimes when I see the World Bank, you think that if anything effective came along that the World Bank could actually do, the first thing that would happen is the American ED would veto it. So it's sort of like, okay, you can do aid provided there's no sacrifice to us at all. If we have to give up anything for these people, we're not um, about to do it. Um, There are issues around recognition of corrupt regimes, of um, accepting debt issued by corrupt regimes, um, of the way that commodities are dealt with around the world, that you allow any dictator to sell commodities to anyone in the world. There's a whole set of issues around global public goods. Um, All of those are things that I endorse and think would be um, really terrific. What I have a problem with is... The assistance of funds or kind from rich countries or international organizations that's actually spent in poor countries, what is usually thought of in aid as aid, and that's what I think is doing the harm. So, this is the last slide. I just wanted to say something about what this is. The problem for me is what aid does to governance um, within countries. And I don't think the poverty um, of the world is actually very much about money. It's certainly true that better health, you could not have a better health service in India at the same amount of money that is spent on health in India now. So I agree with Jeff Sachs and others who say that. The same is true in most of Africa. But more money on those services is currently organized would not produce better services. It would do nothing about mass absenteeism. It would do nothing about the chronic incapacity um, of the state to run a health service or to monitor a private health service. So it's the capacity that's the problem, not the lack of money. And I just want to draw an analogy here. You know, we complain about our government all the time. I I think people in Britain don't complain about their governments, or at least not very much, whereas we in America have very good reason to complain about our government, and we complain about it a lot, uh, especially recently. But, you know, by and large, we pay our taxes. And in return, we've got an enormous list of stuff. Um, Some police, defense, roads. I don't have to read that. But just think of all the things that would vanish if the government closed permanently. Not just some part of it, but all of it. We just could not live our lives um, the way we live our lives. And that is a pretty effective or a pretty accurate to me description of what's happening in most of the poor countries around the world. It's the lack of an effective contract of that sort that is characteristic of so many poor countries. And aid undermines this sort of contract, especially in countries, many of whom are in Africa, where for decades almost all of government revenue has come from outside the country. If almost all government revenue is coming from outside the country, there's no incentive or reason whatsoever for the government to spend any attention all to its citizens and you'll get this, perpet- um, this continuing um, poor government and lack of capacity. And I argue that uh, and it does in the book whether it's government to government or NGOs um, to people that NGOs I don't think buy you out of this. And one thing I just draw attention to um, at the end was I I was debating um, foreign aid with my Princeton colleague, Peter Singer, um, who's a great advocate of foreign aid, a couple of weeks ago. So I read most of what he'd written on this, and I read something I'd meant to read before I wrote the book and should have read before, which is Duncan Green's, the research director of Oxfam, Duncan Green's book um, on aid and poverty um, around the world. And I thought Duncan Green would give me lots of things I could attack and put to my thing. And I was really very, very surprised to find that Duncan Green's arguments and my arguments run along parallel throughout the whole book. And uh, the best age agencies like Oxfam I mean, Duncan Green does not take my position that, you know, aid should be seriously and comprehensively wound down. But the understanding of the undermining of government and the switch of aid from aid. In countries to aid for countries is something that's happened at Oxfam in a large way and I think ought to be done more. So I'm going to stop there. I'll hand over to Nick and be happy to take some questions. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much Angus. Um, I'm worried that (coughs) some of you won't really understand how good the book is and how good the lecture was that you just heard because Angus makes it simple and uses simple techniques and simple graphs. But underneath all this is a lifetime of work um, of understanding data, using data properly. And of course, if you're using data properly, you have to have conceptual frameworks that underpin the questions that you're asking. So this is an absolutely splendid book. And Angus, it was beautifully explained. So um, I'd just like people to understand that you saw the fruits of hard thinking and thinking about exposition. And he made it look easier than it has been. Um, And that was part of the skill of the whole thing. So buy the book, get the signature, and then brag about being there when it was launched in the UK. But it's not LSE's habit or uh, spirit to dwell on uh, agreement. So I won't dwell on agreement. But I wanted to be very clear at the beginning what I thought about what we just heard. And the weaving together of health, wealth, life evaluation and inequality is of fundamental importance. And I haven't seen it done anywhere nearly as good as this anywhere else. And in fact, not many people have attempted it because they haven't seen these relationships as Angus has seen them. So I want to say, having emphasized that health, wealth and life evaluation part of what Angus is doing um, and, and that that's very important advance. It may seem somewhat churlish of me to complain about lack, lack of dimensionality but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if you think of life evaluation um, obviously you've got the questions of language which Angus does uh, discuss and when I was working at the BRD, my favourite interview was when I asked a poll how, how they were because EBRD was investing in Poland. The reply was middling, uh, worse than uh, yesterday but better than tomorrow. And you can see the style of answer to questions makes a big difference to uh, how you think about what's just been said. But Angus deals with that. My, my concern is um, that life evaluation and doing what we think we should do are not necessarily that closely related. Um, Many people act out of a sense of duty and a sense of fulfillment, which may be reflected in life evaluation, but in many ways, I think, are different. Um, So I think in looking at the objectives and Angus is talking about objectives in the way he looks, and, and rightly so, health, wealth and life evaluation. I think we have to look at something which is, uh, in, in some cases, more deep. Um, uh, Angus touches on it when he talks about Martin Nussbaum's concept of the happy soldier. The soldier is happy because that soldier is doing his duty, but then it seems to me that uh, it's almost a tautology. If you do something because it's your duty and therefore therefore, in a sense, you're happy, I think you lose lose meaning. Um, So I think that part of uh, the discussion around what are the objectives of people's lives, given that Angus has richly broadened the agenda, I think is something we could push on rather higher. There are questions of higher and lower selves. Um, We might resolve that the uh, donut. You um, might resolve in the morning or in the months, and I'm not going to eat any donuts that day or in the months, and then the donut goes by and you eat it. So there are difficult questions around what people do and what is uh, uh, giving them a better a better life. And so those questions of dimensionality, I think, are very important. Let me then turn to something which. Um, is again, I'm not sure how far it's in life evaluation. It might be, but it'd be good to pull it apart, and that is uncertainty and risk. I, I've been working in one village in Muradabad district of UP for the last 40 years, and people. And I live in a village in the, U, in the UK, and people ask me what's the difference between your village, which is obviously rather wealthy, in uh, West Sussex, and Palanpur. And I say, well, in Palanpur, people sit around, have a cup of tea stronger substances uh, they chat they have uh, tell jokes about their friends they conspire within the village against different groups and then I say well what about my village in West Sussex and I give exactly the same language because those things go on well what's the difference well as Angus would tell you and has told us uh, you die uh, more uh, easily in uh, in an Indian village and, but there are many other risky things about life, and Angus focused on the dying side. But there are many more risky, uh, many other risky things about life. So I think in thinking about life evaluation, it's not simply about the meaning of duty, fulfilment, and so on. It's also a stronger explicit treatment of risk. Um, there are issues around community. And again, you know, living in a stronger community means a great deal to many people. And much of our concern about what happened in the UK under Mrs. Thatcher was the attack on the sense of community and the sense of public service. Other things which you could describe about that time were actually were rather positive. I'm focusing on one particular issue here. And again, um, it may be that the, the it may be that the index is not very good, but I couldn't find community in the index. And whether you see that and strength of community as something that is just feeding into life evaluation or is, in which case it's interesting as a determinant or whether it's some dimension you should think about, I think is, again, an open question. So the richness of the book makes me hungry for more discussion about dimensionality. Um, Angus did ask me to talk about... um, climate change, so I will, but I'll be very quick. So this is my forecasting side of the thing. And I share with Angus a great interest uh, between before and after the last ice age. Uh, The Holocene period, uh, we were in in a uh, a global average surface temperature of plus or minus one or one and a half degrees centigrade. We're now about four degrees, four or five degrees centigrade above the ice age itself. So we know that temperature changes of four or five degrees are, for example, the difference between the last ice age and now, and that has dramatic effects on where people can live. We risk generating those kinds of changes um, over 100 or 150 years, incredibly fast. So I do think that we're building in quite extraordinary risks and we don't know really how we could manage those risks because everything would be going much faster than the evolutionary processes. Even the last nine or ten millennia since the Holocene period, since the end of the last ice age, is very small in evolutionary time. And I share with Angus the, the idea that our values as homo sapiens, 250,000 years perhaps, uh, through evolution may well be on uh, set in ways which even seven or 8,000 years of the uh, stationary agriculture, storage, surplus and so on, that gave us the ability to have uh, universities and football matches this Tuesday evening, um, half an hour before kick-off. So, um, but these are, these are periods when um, that's a very special period which developed the way we live now. But even that was short in evolutionary time. So if we change it on the dramatic scale we're talking about over, I don't know, 100, 150 years, we don't know how we're going to cope with that. So we could actually, through the environment, be turning things upside down. Very quickly on politics and institutions and on aid, because Angus didn't focus a great length on those, but he did touch on them. Um, I think that one of the things for research on development which books like Angus throw throw at us is how institutions change for the better. We're quite good at describing how institutions change for the worse and uh, uh, Angus referred to some of those but how do they change for the better and I think the study of examples of how they change for the better is actually of extreme importance. And uh, some of us have been looking at what's happened in Bihar over the last uh, decade, where you have had um, state institutions kick upwards in a very strong way. And one example was to, and I, again, I, we haven't got time to <laughs> develop the case of Bihar, but what happened, one of the things that happened was that it was a, under new Chief Minister Nitish Kumar, and he took. A lot of uh, retired army people, and arm- the Army in India is one of the institutions that works better than the others and he uh, put them uh, into the police force and as a result, um, the administration of um, uh, the law uh, increased uh, in a very striking way so Angus is inviting us really through the way he emphasises the problems of capacity in institutions to look at those kinds of issues and uh, then we can I think try to identify how institutions change the better. I really don't think any of that's going to come out of regression analysis or cross-country regressions, that's for the birds. It's going to, for this kind of question, not necessarily for all questions but for this kind of question, It's really understanding what happened in a particular place. Lastly, on aid, Angus knows that I'm more optimistic than him about our ability to use aid. Well, um, I I was on Oxfam's Africa and Asia committees sequentially in the 70s and the 80s. When I first came to the LSE in the 80s, I used to teach, and had on my development reading course, the Oxfam Field Director's Handbook I haven't gone back and looked at it recently but it was a very good articulation of experience and understanding of things that had gone wrong, things that had went well and how we can do it better. I think that the, I was chief economist at the EBRD for six years in investing in uh, Eastern Europe and working directly on the kinds of projects which could show how to do things differently and help change competition, institutions and so on through backing good examples of, in many cases, entrepreneurial activity in environments where the private market wasn't able uh, to do that, particularly around the transition. My first applied project was tea in Kenya in the late 60s and it was a remarkable extension of um, Smallholder t- tea to smallholders, in this case, people who had acquired land after the uh, independence, most of them women, making very long term investments because tea takes some um, quite a while to come to fruition. And it was well organized, effective. And tea is still, and much of it smallholder tea, where there was none before, one of the most powerful uh, exports of Kenya, even given the rather difficult state of that country. I could go on, but the question is. Uh, and Angus recognises these examples, but the question is, can we, how far can we tell the difference? How far can we tell the difference between the good examples and the bad examples, both ex-ante and ex-post? And I've tried to give examples which suggest that we can do much better. I've worked in India through the Green Revolution, and that was in many cases funded by um, public agencies not just the discovery but also the extension so that there are things that can go well and I think of that as a bit like the example that uh, Angus gave of um, funding better ways of and more uh, effective ways of, of dealing with uh, illnesses and medicines and uh, that's an example probably which fits quite well with the story that he told so I do think we, you can uh, uh, tell the difference not certainty certainty is not on offer in this area but well enough i think to pursue the kind of projects that oxfam pursues that ebrd world bank and diffid pursue um i won't go on we could go on all night about aid and i didn't want to go on too long i probably did already um so at that point i'll stop but i'll stop the way i started you were privileged to see something very special this evening and it's a very special book buy it get it signed and show it show it off
0: let me just pull a couple of things. Um, I, I think um, that I'm very grateful to Nick for his kind words, um, and um, I hope you do enjoy the book. Um, I think it. I probably didn't make it very clear in the lecture, or maybe didn't come out through the comments, but it it really is written at a pretty accessible level. So it's a fairly easy um, read. And part of the purpose was to try and distill many years of work into something that could be enjoyably read by a wide range um, of people. Just a couple of very quick responses, and then I'll make a final point. Um, One is the the life evaluation is a tiny part of the book. It just is at the very beginning. And all I really wanted to show was that life evaluation measures look a lot like health and wealth and then get on and talk about health and wealth. So it's not an important part of my story. And I agree with a lot of Nick's um, reservations about it, but not much hinges on it for my story. Um, I don't, again, want to say much about aid. Um, I do think institutions are central, like Nick does. Unlike Nick, I don't think we, from the outside, have any right or much ability um, to influence other people's institutions, and I think that's been, that turn that's happened in the bank and elsewhere has been disastrous, not because they've got the analysis wrong, but because you can't really do very much about institutions from outside of someone's country. I also like the Green Revolution story, but the Green Revolution to me is a classic case of aid for um, rather than aid in, meaning it was the scientific revolutions that really made the difference, um, not so much the aid that was extended to make them happen. But I really want to, I don't want to um, nitpick on this, and I want to go back to a sort of broader um, issue. If any of you know the movie, um, The Great Escape, or they know actually the history um, of the actual case on which the movie um, was based, some of you here will know who Francis Wilson is, who is a very distinguished um, South African economist. Um, Frances's wife, um, Libby Wilson, is a documentary movie maker. And she has made a documentary movie, The True Story um, of The Great Escape. And the leader of the Great Escape in real life was her uncle um, who went off as a South African to fight for Britain um, in the Royal Air Force in the Second World War and who never came back um, having been um, <coughs> um, captured while escaping and having escaped on three previous occasions. Um, Hitler had had enough and had him illegally executed. Um, by this side of the road on his personal um, orders. Um, Again, if you've seen the movie or if you go back and read the original book, um, it did not have a happy ending. Um, I think something like three of the 200 escapees um, actually got home. A lot of the rest were returned to jail and many others died, um, were executed for their troubles. Um, At the very end of the book, I have a sort of postscript um, speculating about whether the Great Escape is a good metaphor from where we are now. The thing is that 250 years is not very long. So the sort of tale of progress and in health and wealth that's happened over the last 250 years, is just a tiny fraction of mankind's history. And it may be that a thousand years from now, when we look back, it'll look like China looked like in the 11th century. I mean, a flash in the pan that you had this glory for a brief period, and then it all came to a terrible shuddering halt. I actually don't think that'll happen because I'm broadly optimistic. Um, you can destroy the knowledge, you can fill in the tunnels, but you can't destroy the knowledge of how the tunnels were dug. Human ingenuity is an enormous force for good, and even if catastrophes happen, I think we'll come out of them. But the dangers are there. Um, Nick has worked and talked eloquently about climate change. There are political risks all the time. Um, You look at what's happening in Washington now, you could easily spin a horrible story about precipitating the world into a recession that was much worse than what happened in 2008. Um, with people's portfolios around the world destroyed and just terrible long-run consequences. And that's over some squabble um, over healthcare. Um, Another thing to think about is if, I'm not sure the politics in China is that different today from what it was in 1960. Um, If there was an incomparable famine going on in China today, I think the huge difference is that we would know about it, whereas the world did not know about it in 1958 to 1960. Whether the world could do anything about it, knowing about it, is a much, much more difficult question. And if you want to think that there's been huge progress in the world, it's worth thinking about what your answer is um, to that question. So in my bad days, when I can't sleep at night, I think maybe the last 250 years was like the 11th century in China, um, where there was this enormous progress for a while, and then it vanished from the face of the earth. But I hope not. Thank you very much. You. Questions? We're happy to take a couple of questions. time. Any questions from the floor? If you could just say who you are. I, I could let Nick answer that but I mean I think he and I have talked about this quite a lot over the years and it's not entirely obvious I think. I think it's very unpredictable what the political and economic consequences would be, except that they'd be really, really bad. Um, and my guess is the rich countries would do relatively well for themselves, so the answer would be yes, but it's not entirely obvious. Uh,
1: I, I, agree. I agree with Angus. Um, obviously, it's not really a, a talk about climate change, but it is true that uh, poorer people, poorer regions, poorer countries are likely
0: to get hit earliest and hardest. Yeah, please get
1: the microphone. Hi, I'm Jasper Illingson. Uh You talked about um, the concept of positive, the positives below, of inequality, uh, for example, the, the smallpox inoculations. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the mechanisms of these positive consequences and if they're in existence. In in present day, Um,
0: you mean in in as they actually work today? I mean, I think a lot of it is just seeing that um, the demonstration that you don't have to die, um, and that mortality rates are falling um, among better-off groups, um, that healthcare is sometimes better for better-off groups. There's a much saner system for proving that in the United Kingdom than there is in the United States. Um, and I think Americans um, suffer an enormous amount of medical care that doesn't do any good at all, more so than here. Um, on the other hand, um, this demonstration that some group can benefit from this seems to me a very powerful inequality and also a very powerful incentive, um, both for people and also for doctors who care about these sort of inequalities to inspire and spread it out more widely. It doesn't always happen. And I've written elsewhere that... You know, when I think it's um, not quite true, but let's say it's true for the minute, that the Surgeon General's report in the United States in 1964, which many Americans remember as demonstrating to them the perils of tobacco smoking, um, that opened up enormous inequalities. Um, The Surgeon General was actually smoking on the way to the press conference um, to announce the results of his report, and one of his PR guys in his car said, sir you know, the first question they're going to ask you in there is whether you smoke or not. And the, he got very angry and jumped up and down and said, that's ridiculous. That's a personal question. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with this report. And his aide said, yeah, okay, it may not, but um, that's the question you're going to be asked. And so when he was asked the question, which was the first question from the floor, they said, do you smoke? And he said, no. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> he said, how long since you smoked? He said, I quit 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, that's a sort of parable of what was happening, that the that physicians gave up first and then the well-educated and better off people gave up first. And so you got these big health inequalities that came as a result of that report. I was once on a committee with epidemiologists who were bemoaning these health inequalities, which they thought was the worst thing in the world. And I said to them as a sort of reducti ad absurdum, I said, would you have suppressed the Surgeon General's report? You know, which was supposed to be just ridiculous. And they looked at one of them and said, boy, that's a real hard one. And I think if they'd voted on it, the Surgeon General's report would have gone down because they hate the inequalities so much. And there's a bit of that that's true. I mean, it's now 50 years on. So why are the inequalities that came from that report still there? And you know, why has that knowledge not successfully or it's not so much knowledge because I think smokers understand very well the issue, but it's the consequences of that, which uh, doesn't seem to have happened. I don't think we understand those things. So, uh, you know, these things can become really problematic if they don't eliminate relatively quickly.
1: There was another question over here,
0: sorry.
2: Thank you, Uh, from the European Institute at LSE. I find it interesting that you disputed a bit this, you know, um, inequalities come in multiple dimensions and they reinforce each other, so it's all a vicious circle and so on. You said there are unintended consequences and actually one inequality may not lead to the other inequality getting worse or something. What is the policy implication of this? Would you say, therefore, in a way it's fine to do inequality policies basically in policy silos, isolated, some do health and others do income inequality because how they interact, we don't know.
0: Well, I'm not sure we know how they interact, but I do think that it's a terrible mistake to go into the policy silos. So if you like, I mean, that's one of the main purposes of this book, and it was the hardest thing to write about it. I'm not a professional demographer. I'm an economist. I'm not a professional historian. I'm not a professional philosopher. But if you don't think about all of these things together, you're going to get it wrong. And that, that to me, is absolutely vital. That doesn't mean we always know how to think about them together. But you do have to think about them together. Because otherwise, you get this nonsense that economists are always perpetrating, which is they say, you know, if one person's income goes up and no one else's income goes down, then that's good. And that's complete nonsense. And it comes from looking in too narrow a space. So I, I think the answer to these cumulative inequalities is activism. I mean, I think people have to get involved in politics they really have to vote it really matters i mean and it's astonishing how much it matters um, and politics is very responsive to voters being prepared to vote and politicians really care about that and so the recipe you know the participatory active reasoned <coughs> democracy is the answer to all of this stuff and it's on our all our own shoulders i'm
1: not going to be very uh, Democratic. Just one last question, I'm afraid.
2: Uh, that's all we've got time for, really. <coughs> Hello, my name is Seeshan Koresh. Uh, one thing that I found quite interesting is when, when you said that if you were given a billion dollars to spend on health inequality, why wouldn't you just start a research institution for these diseases? What really interests me is what you're alluding to at the moment about citizen participation about the power of the individual. I just wondered what, what you think us as individuals with maybe with not
1: billions that we might
2: have but with the right. um, and the time we might have, particularly the best use of us as resources to tackle this might be? Right. Whilst well, you think about that, Angus, there was one...
0: one the someone back, had been asking for a long time at the back, yeah. yeah. Please. I have a good answer to that, so I'm delighted to there's a, there's a come. Yep. So that's the absolute
2: last. Um, if your objection to aid undermining the political contract is based around the idea of a third party, a wealthy third party, um, the government being more responsive to their needs than to its citizens. If that's kind of the core of your objection there, then I have to ask, in the light of the extreme inequality taking that's showing up in in the first world and and, and all over the world, are you then worried about the rich world's um, dissolving political contract?
0: Yeah, very much so. I think inequality is very corrosive of that political contract in rich countries, and that rich citizens can do something about that. But there's a big difference between being within a country in which you're linked together by having to pay taxes together, by justice, the things that make sense within a country, and subjecting people's health care in other countries to the political process in Canada or the United States, for instance, which has happened um, repeatedly. So I think that's a real problem. We, these indigenous healthcare systems have to evolve, and they won't evolve given what's going on right now. So let me just come back to this question, which I like a lot because this happens to me all the time, which is you know, there are terrific students at Princeton, almost as good as the students at the LSE, I'm sure, who come. <laughs> and they tell me, you know, they talk to me about their deep commitment. Um, to doing something about the moral obligations that they feel um, towards the poor people um, of the world. And I give them two models which I think are a thing. There's one that's really, really hard and Nick knows this as well as I do, which is our mutual friend Jean Dres, who had that commitment in spades, as it were, and who went off to India, who became an Indian citizen, who became a local activist who wanders around India agitating and has a really good claim to being the world's most successful agitator. But by total immersion in the Indian polity and by denying his citizenship, his Belgian citizenship, and becoming Indian, and without that, he would not have the legitimacy to do what he's done. He will not take money from the outside. It's even somewhat of a problem for him if he writes papers with me or if he writes papers with Nick. He has to explain that to the people um, he works with, and he'll do that, but it's hard. So that's one model. The other model is the age four model, which is I tell my students, the American ones at least, to go to Washington and do something about all this crap that's going on in Washington and tell people if they really want to help poor people of the world, um, they've really got to get serious about the things, the US policies that are hurting those countries. They have legitimacy to speak there. They have the power to speak there. They're incredibly smart. I mean, these are people who've got a really good chance of being (coughs) CEOs or prime ministers or presidents or whatever. Um, These young people have enormous power, and they could really change the world. In this way in an enormously positive way and if that's what you'd want to do you know keep the 300 pounds in your wallet but go down the street there and agitate and try to change these policies and I think that's what needs to be done thank you